0: Well good morning. Uh, my name is Jeff Jew. I'm the RUF campus minister at Queen's College, and it is a joy and honor to bring God's word to you church this morning. Our passage is from Second Kings chapter 2. two. Kings chapter two. If you're following along in the, the Pew Bibles, it's on page three oh seven. And when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it, keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. 50 men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. And Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other. So the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha, and they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. When they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and said to him, Did I not say to you, Do not go? And the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water had been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I know the end of this passage is pretty gruesome, um, especially since it ends with Elisha cursing a a group of young boys to be mauled by she-bears. But this is really just a small glimpse of what was happening at large in Israel at the time. There's political unrest. There's rebellion against God. Israel is surrounded by enemies inside and out. There's fighting over land and assassinations of kings. Armies are getting destroyed over and over to give you a little context into the passage that was just read, First and Second Kings was written to tell the story of the kings that ruled Israel and Judah. They were the two kingdoms that the Israelites were divided into after King David's rule. Now both kingdoms went through different paths. Israel cycling through nine families of kings like a revolving door versus Judah with only one family of kings. Now the significance in this is that as different as those paths were, they both resulted in exile And destruction. One gets taken by Assyria and the other gets taken by Babylon. The author is essentially saying God gave his people kings because they wanted them, but in the end the monarchy that they asked for still failed. Now as much history as you learn from uh, about these kings from these two books, there was also a big emphasis on theology. The author makes it clear that there is only one God and one temple to worship him in Jerusalem. All the kings were supposed to lead their people in worship in the proper way and place, but they all turned to idols, worshiping Baal and at all the places. In this time of political instability, the prophets, who were bearers of God's word, mighty in word and deed, they were supposed to counterbalance the kings by holding them accountable in case they ever went down the path of corruption. And believe me, most of them did. Basically, the prophets made sure that the kings were doing their job. Now, entering into today's passage, Elijah, he's at the tail end of his ministry. Now, typically, there isn't a succession of prophets. God just raises up another one. However, what we see here is incredibly unique because we're actually witnessing the torch being passed on. And I believe it's a great example of a discipleship relationship that we're to engage in with one another. How discipleship can be seen in this passage can be found in three points, the prophet's legacy, the prophet's words, and the prophet's deeds the prophet's legacy prophet's words and the prophet's deeds first the prophet's legacy elijah's legacy is definitely everything that he's done right in challenging the government winning crazy battles against idolaters and raising people from the dead but here the passage makes it clear that even more than that elijah's legacy is a disciple he's traveling with elisha his assistant his protege Elijah knows that he has to travel further, which will soon result in him being taken up to God. But Elisha refuses to leave him. He's attached to him. You can sense the the stress in Elisha's voice when he responds to Elijah telling him to to stay put. And it's aggravated by the sons of prophets around him saying, he's going to leave you. See, Elisha has to keep responding, yes, I know. Yes, I know. It's the constant wearing and nagging of someone's annoying words. Like when you know something terrible is going to happen and the people just feel like they just have to keep reminding you. Like imagine sitting beside the deathbed of a relative and the doctors and nurses just pop in every 10 minutes saying, do you know that your mom is going to die? Do you know that your dad is going to die? It's unnecessary. It's insensitive. It's, all, it's, it's maddening. See, Elisha can already feel the loneliness of going the prophetic lifestyle alone alone. So he tries to cling to his master for dear life. In his final request to Elijah, he asks, please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now in Israel's tradition, the oldest son will receive the double portion of his father's inheritance. Elisha wants that same thing. What could a prophet possibly leave behind? For Elisha, he senses that his master has had a special relationship with God. Elisha understands that his master was a remarkable prophet. He wants the spiritual strength to be able to do his job and to do his job well. Elijah will be leaving behind a powerful ministry, a sensational legacy. Elisha probably thought, how can I live up to my master? And everyone around him was thinking the same thing. Is Elijah, is Elisha going to be good enough? We all know a little bit something about starting a new role, don't we? Whether it's a new job or becoming a spouse or becoming a parent, there's always that voice that tells us, you don't really know what you're doing. You are going to fail. And in a sense, that's true, right? There's no way for us to truly understand the responsibilities of our new roles until we actually do them. And this is why discipleship is so important. See, for Elijah, he didn't leave Elisha with nothing. Elijah had brought Elisha along in his journey He allowed his disciple to see, to hear what he was doing. Elijah's ministry was very public, but I'm willing to bet that there were a lot of conversations and teaching moments and bonding moments behind the scenes between Elijah and Elisha. They lived life together. And in the end, he does leave Elisha a double portion of his spirit. As a confirmation of this, Elisha takes up the mantle, he strikes the water, he parts it, just like his master did, and he crosses over in a kind of prove it, moment, Elisha basically shows the world, I'm here. I'm not alone. Let's get to work. You see, we will all leave behind a legacy. And when you think of legacy, the temptation is to think large, to think big. What am I going to do that's going to change the world? And that, that's good. It's good to dream big. But more often than not, our lives will not have that kind of world-changing impact. We're going to live ordinary lives in an ordinary way, and that's more than perfectly okay. See, for many of us, that's how God commands us to live. And in all of that, no matter what happens, we're going to leave an imprint on someone's life. We read about the miraculous things and remarkable demonstrations of power by someone like Elijah, calling down fire from heaven, raising people from the dead, and we think, yeah, let's be like Elijah. But if we look deeper, he's a prophet who goes on the run at one point. He's fearing for his life. He's in a desert, starving and thirsty. The main government at the time doesn't like him. You see, to be a prophet, to be a bearer of God's word, is to shoulder not just the miraculous, but also the miserable. It's not just the awesome, but also the awful. Friends, hear this. Being a Christian, bearing God's prophetic word into the world will come with difficulties. Elijah didn't do it alone. Elisha didn't do it alone, and you don't have to do it alone. Michael Horton writes in his book, Ordinary, uh, he says, sometimes chasing your dreams can be easier than just being who we are, where God has placed you with the gifts he has given to you. Isn't that so true? For us, that means being present and hospitable right where we are, engaging those in the communities we are already in. It's a call to live as faithful servants of God in these everyday moments and seeking to make God's name known, not our own. It means we take up the calling of discipleship. See, the Christian life is communal. It is meant to be lived out with other Christians. This contradicts the, the individualistic society that we live in today. Uh, the I'll do, me, I'll do me, you do you mindset. The one that tells that, us that we can just do what we want and we don't need anyone else elisha says no 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 i need my master i need my discipler i need my mentor and elijah walked with him if you say no, no no i'm i'm good just with jesus and myself you're missing the point in this story that shows the relationship between elijah and elisha who are being faithful to god by investing in each other in the same way that The Apostle Paul says in his letters, follow me as I follow Christ. I encourage you to do the same. Look for older men and women whom you can follow because they have been an example of faith. See, God understands that we're not just brains on a stick, that we can't just read about Jesus and then just follow him. We need living, practical examples in our lives as we follow Christ. Who are those godly examples in your lives that you need to pay attention to? At the same time, be on the lookout for those that you can mentor and disciple. You have a responsibility to raise up your younger brothers and sisters in Christ. It means being intentional and being unafraid to dive deep and having the hard conversations about being a Christian and what that means for topics like racism and and, and injustice. It means really wrestling with your own idols and putting sin to death as you disciple others to do the same. Friends, are you aware of your legacy? Do you know what you're leaving behind? Do you know who you're leaving behind? Will people say of you, this woman, this man, had been with Jesus? Our second point, the prophet's words. Now, prophets were known for their words uh, because that was their job, to, to speak. They were the loudspeakers, the mouthpieces of God. They were messengers. And yes, most of the time they were calling God's people to repentance, to turn away from their sin, but that was because God loved them. The relationship between God and his people is so intimate that J.I. Packer, he calls Christianity a religion of personal pronouns. My, ours, mine. He is my God. He is our God. That intimacy is what gives meaning to when God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is amazing love. And God showed that through his words through the prophets. So what do the prophets say in this passage? Uh, Not a lot, but we see that the prophets' words have power. Elijah asks Elisha what he wants in verse 9, and he says yes to his request in verse 11. He comforts his disciple. He gives him assurance But you know what's so interesting about what Elijah says to Elisha? You'll only get a double portion of my spirit if you see me being taken. Why did he have this requirement? It's because Elisha could then tell the author of Kings about this miraculous event. Elisha, God's next chosen spokesman, could give verbal testimony to how Elijah was taken. We have scripture because of what Elisha said. Later on, when Elijah is gone, Elisha heals the water. But before he does so, he says in verse 21, thus says the Lord. The prophet's words had healing power because he was speaking on behalf of God. And of course, Elisha's words were also powerful enough to condemn in verses 23 to 25 when he curses the small boys and the she-bears attack. Now, I want to address the she-bears briefly. We see Elisha cursing the boys in the name of the Lord. And some of you are probably thinking, that you can go around cursing the people who make fun of you, but please don't do that. You'll get in trouble. I'll get in trouble. It's not going to be good. But there is something to be said about what Elisha did. You see, Bethel had become a place of idol worship. Elisha was there as God's anointed man, standing up for God's truth and bringing the word of life to a corrupt nation that had turned its back on God. To make fun of Elisha, was to make fun of God, and now as God's prophet, he brings judgment through his words by causing a pretty gruesome event to happen. It gives a whole new dimension to the verse in Galatians, God is not mocked. What does this mean for us? How often do you speak out against idolatry? Do you know your own idols? As I bring back this idea of church as a communal family, I know that we don't like to talk about our struggle with sins, right? Like our real struggles. We're only like a little bit sinful, right? We're going to tell white lies here and there. And in general, we're good people. We do good. Let me pose this to you. If your sole goal in life is to make money, to have a family, to own a house, land your dream job, or your cell phone is glued to your hand and you binge watch more TV shows than there are hours in a day, you're more of an idolater than you think. And you have more in common with these little boys than you do with Elisha. And the Bible is very clear about what happens to idolatry. If you take these things that are good, these are good things, and you make them an ultimate thing, then you are essentially saying to God, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And God has every right to judge you. Judgment was also the power of a prophet's words. Now, do you recognize the power of your own words? You see, we we might not be prophets, but our words have the power to heal and to also do great damage. James chapter 3 speaks of taming the tongue, and in verse 9, we praise the Lord and Father with our tongues and then curse human beings made in God's likeness. We have the potential to do great things with our speech, with our words. We can sing loudly as we just did and praise God. We can give encouragement and compliments the people around us. We can enact great change in the government with our words. We can start petitions and revolutionary moments with our words, but we also have the power to tear people down, to destroy people's lives and careers. In the age of cancel culture and social media, words oftentimes have more power than actions. Our words don't only reflect what we believe, but also who we look up to. Friends, consider your words as you go out into the world today, does your speech honor God and reflect his character? Are your words life-giving? Are they convicting and comforting? How are you using them to teach the next generation? When you stand before God one day, what will he say of what you have said? Lastly, the prophets' deeds. Now, this passage is not lacking on, prophets, on, on, on prophetic deeds. This passage starts off with a bang. Elijah is about to be taken up by a whirlwind. Do not let the force of that phrase escape you. When was the last time you saw say, someone being taken up by a whirlwind? Right? And to heaven. As he comes up to the Jordan, he rolls up his cloak. He strikes the water and it splits, verse 8, just like Moses did. And of course, Elisha gets an on the action later by doing the same thing in verse 14. The author is making it very clear. Elisha can also do great things. This prophet's got power, just like his master. He can do the same thing, and now others have seen it too. But Elisha's ministry is just beginning. He comes upon the city, and the water is bad and unfruitful, verse 19. So what does he do? He puts some salt in it. Boom, the water is healed. No more death and miscarriage from the water. Elisha's compassion on the people of the city caused him to use his God-given power to stop death and give life. I wish I could do that by adding salt to my water. But then again, I wouldn't want my water to cause death and miscarriage in the first place. So praise God for that New York water. <laughs> as Elisha's actions speak to his prophetic status, so do our actions speak of our status as Christians. James says in chapter 2, verse 18, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Your actions matter. And we know this even more than we know that our words matter. See, I I can tell my wife I love her every day. If I didn't spend time with her, if I didn't take care of her, if I didn't buy her Chick-fil-A, I think she would have a hard time believing me. (laughs) Another example is my daughter. Uh, She's six months old, and I tell her I love her every day. But she has no concept or understanding of the phrase, I love you, because she doesn't understand words yet. So I show her I love her by hugging her, playing with her, feeding her, reading to her, comforting her when she cries. I do believe that she can put that together to understand that I love her. So friends, I ask, what are you doing? Do your actions give glory to God? Do your actions show the world that you love God? Does your life align with what you proclaim? Have you done good deeds? Is your life an example for someone to follow? Now, as you think about how this passage teaches us how to live a life of discipleship, let's also remember that we are not the original hearers of this, of this passage. Judah in exile was. Remember, Judah was in exile in Babylon because they constantly and consistently disobeyed God. Do this, God says, and their response is, "No, no, 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 I'm going to continue doing that. Worship me, he says. Their response, no, I'm going to keep my nice home and worship these other gods. Stop oppressing people with your practices, he says. No, 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 I'm going to keep making money off of my practices, so I'm just going to keep doing it. Worship me, he says, over and over again. And so they say, okay, I'll come to church on the Lord's Day and sing loudly and prepare my sacrifices, but every other day of the week... I'm going to keep living my own comfortable life without any care for the poor and the marginalized. Eventually, God gets so fed up that he sends them into exile. He uses the nation of Babylon to destroy the city of Jerusalem and deport the Jews. The thing is, God actually told them that he was going to do this. He warned them multiple times that if they disobeyed him, in the words of the prophets, he would punish them. God was patient with them he gave them ample opportunities to to change to stop the exile from happening he warned them he looks upon their sin and ours and doesn't immediately punish us what grace what mercy what kindness what an opportunity to repent but they clearly don't take that opportunity and now they are under the rule of another nation you can sense the despair around them It is the aroma of hopelessness. It is the perfect breeding ground for a kind of cognitive dissonance. Yahweh, you are supposed to save us. You are supposed to protect us. You are supposed to to use us for your grand purposes. Why are we here? But God already told them why. It was a response to their own actions, but they just couldn't accept that. And aren't we the same? We know that God is just. We cry out to him, but we never think it's fair when his justice is being doled out onto us. We always want and expect God to show us kindness and mercy, but we take advantage of it. And honestly, I think more often than we like to admit, we make up excuses for our sins, justify our actions of disobedience, and when it catches up to us, we claim we don't understand why. Friends, is that how you feel today? Maybe you're wrestling with all that is going on in the world. The political strife, the explosion of the more publicized and explicit acts of racism against our brothers and sisters of color, a mental health crisis, and on top of all of that, international war and, and crumbling economies. Do these things cause tension in your heart? Do you ever question God asking, why, or how long, O Lord? Do your tears of lament over the sudden death of a loved one mix with your tears of joy of seeing a family member recover from cancer or watching a grandson walk for the first time and you wonder, how could this be? These are the things that cause our heart to ache, the joy in the midst of pain, the celebration in the midst of grief, the things that cause a divide and confuses us on how we're supposed to think or feel. In exile, the Israelites were very familiar with these mixed feelings, but they still had to go on. They still had to find a way to live their lives. It would have been tempting to use their their situation to justify neglecting God. But even in exile, God gave them opportunities to repent, and here he gives them examples to follow in Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha are models because they were both faithful prophets of God who demonstrated a discipleship, that was impactful in its legacy, words, and deeds, the kind of relationship that was able to sway the king's practices, even if just for a moment. As Judah was hearing about their lives, they should have been thinking, how then do we disciple the next generation so that they don't repeat our mistakes? There's hope in this passage for Israel. When they read about how Elisha healed the water with salt, this would have triggered them to remember the commandment in Leviticus 2 to add salt to all their grain offerings. It was a reminder to them that God's relationship to his people was forever. Like salt's preservative properties, God would preserve this intimate relationship between him and his people, and he would not keep them in exile. This was the hope they clung onto, that they would be brought out of exile, but the greater hope for them was yet to come. See, the main point in this passage is in verse 11, when Elijah is taken up by the whirlwind. You see, the author is trying to get the reader to focus on Elijah being taken up. Elijah, the awesome prophet, is taken up in a remarkable and awesome display of chariots and horses of fire. I mean, if you're going to heaven, that is the way to go. But don't we have something greater than Elijah? There was another prophet who was taken up in glory. The Son of God. God incarnate, Jesus Christ, was taken up. But before that, he came down. He comes to us in our humanity and lives the greatest prophetic life ever. A prophet mightiest in word and deed, but he also leaves the greatest legacy, the legacy which is the salvation of sinners, which frees us to worship God as he is and gives us the hope that we need to press on when things don't make sense around us. Elijah and Elisha point to Jesus, the true prophet, the one who speaks the word of God, because he is the word. Luke 24 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be, be fulfilled. His ministry was filled with miracles and preaching on the kingdom of God. His deeds were always blessing others, healing sicknesses, feeding large groups of people, teaching, convicting, comforting, and calling out idolatry. Those were Jesus' words. But in the end, his words and his deeds led him to the place where he could do no more deeds and say no more words. Cross. His mighty words and deeds culminated in the greatest demonstration of love, his death on the cross, and resurrection. The parting of the waters and the passage in in verses eight and fourteen would have been symbolic to the Israelites, not just in the sense of the power of the prophets, but also as a reminder of the salvation granted to them in the Exodus. Jesus, the greater prophet, the greater Elijah and Elisha, parts the waters that separate man from God through his death on the cross so that salvation from sin and death will be sure for everyone who believes. Jesus is the greater prophet because he comes directly from the presence of God. He is the son of God. There is no need for this prophet to counterbalance a king because he himself is the perfect incorruptible king friends do you know this prophet have you heard of this good news when this captures your mind and your heart a life of prophetic discipleship will be inevitable it will be a natural outpouring of grace when you see that it was Jesus' love that led him to die to take on the judgment that should have been for sinners such as you and me How could you not be filled with the desire to disciple those for whom he died? And how could you not be filled with the desire to follow after him and those whom he leads? Maybe you're here for the first time or you've been in church for a long time, but you still don't believe. I want to invite you to think, instead of saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head, to this Jesus. Consider what he has done for you. Jesus Christ takes the punishment that should have been for you on the cross for your sins. He died in your place and he was torn up even more so than the small boys by the she bears so that we might be part of a different kind of community, an eternal one. Is this not grace? In one sense, we should have the heart of Elisha and yearning for the double portion of Elijah, but in another sense, We already have him. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We are united to Christ, Emmanuel, God with us by the Spirit. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a part of his legacy. That is marvelous, wonderful joy. As we see Elisha parting the water, healing the water, and speaking curses on the boys, we should not be discouraged and say that we have no power. Jesus assures his disciples and us in John 14, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What a promise, especially for us in our sinfulness that we can fight the temptation of sin we can preach with power, we can evangelize to the nations, show compassion to the least of these, all because Jesus has only left us physically, but he has empowered us by the Holy Spirit to live fruitful, godly, gospel-centered lives here on earth. And let's remember that all these deeds that we do, we are not saved by them. We do them because God has already saved us, He has already freed us. So until Jesus comes again, what do we do? We go and make disciples of all nations. We live a life of prophetic discipleship now. As the Holy Spirit guides you, as you spend time in the word and in prayer, you will know who the faithful men are. You will know who the faithful women are. You will know who the faithful older brothers and sisters are following after Jesus. Pay attention to their lives. Follow their holiness. Listen to what they say because God has placed them in your life to encourage you, to love you, and to show you how life can truly be changed by grace. And then through that, you will learn how to speak into other people's lives, to call out their idolatry and lovingly point them back to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you've came. You have paid the price for us on the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you give us examples in Scripture and here, in our churches, in our congregations, in our communities, who we can look up to. Lord, help us to endure until the end, to live a life of faithful ministry until the end. Keep us, Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.